it was definitely kind of a miserable week. I don't mind admitting that. Um, I do want to thank those of you who took time to pray to reach out to us and check in, provide even some meals. I appreciate that very much. Bethany said she knew it was bad when I canceled six of my eight meetings this week, and the two I attended were both on the computer, and I actually went to the doctor. Um, So that was her clue. But I appreciate you very much checking in and making sure we were okay. Um, Because of how this week went, I oscillated on what do I do this morning? I really tried to focus on doing the bare minimum necessary last week, which really meant two things, and one of those was sermon prep. And I'd already spent the first two weeks studying two weeks ago. It was just a matter of bringing points together, but truly my focus this week was so difficult. Trying to bring those points together was a struggle for me. And so what I decided to do and made the decision to do was something different this morning, Basically pulling together some notes and things that I've been working on, some of it from years ago, of things I've been thinking through, um, and pulling together those points through a verse. This did indeed help me out, but it's actually not unrelated in the sense that what we talk about today will lead into what we go into next in Colossians 4, 3 through 4. But it also comes and and coincides very well with what we're doing on Wednesday nights. And for those that that have not been there, Wednesday nights has been primarily focused on sharing the gospel. And I kind of have it divided into three parts. The first has been a theology of evangelism. Why do we evangelize? The second will be the theology of the gospel. What is the gospel? When we say that word, beyond good news, what is included in that? And then the last aspect is supposed to be a practical application of that theology with some helps on how to help us share the gospel more freely. So this morning, my message and thoughts kind of build upon that, but also lead into the next passage in Colossians. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, Jesus Christ, Our Message and Our Motivation. I do ask that you please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> First Corinthians chapter 1. I think I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Wherever, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You may be seated. On March 25, 1861, Charles Spurgeon ascended into the pulpit of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. He'd already been their passage, their preacher for a number of years, but this time he was inaugurating the use of a new building. This was the largest Protestant church in the world at the time, and so no doubt people waited with anticipation, as they did every week for what Spurgeon would say. And Spurgeon delivered a message from Acts 5.42 a message on the crucified Christ, a topic that would be the mark of his ministry for the next 31 years. It was during that sermon that Spurgeon declared, I would propose that the subject of ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. But if I'm asked to say what is my creed, I think I must reply, it is Jesus Christ. The body of divinity to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is Christ Jesus, who is the sum and substance of the gospel, who is in himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth, the all-glorious personal embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life. When evaluating the ministry of Spurgeon, most church historians would agree that his time of ministry really exuded one theme, that he was a Christ-centered preacher for a Christ-centered purpose with a Christ-centered ministry. In those words, Spurgeon staked his reasoning and his reputation and his reliability upon the person, plan, and power of Jesus Christ. Emerging out of our time in Colossians 4.2 last week was the notion that the nature of Christ determines the nature of our lives. The same could be said of the church and the ministry. The nature of Christ determines the nature of the church that proclaims his name. The nature of Christ determines the nature of ministry that bears his name. It is Christ who determines the character of church and ministry. It is Christ who determines the meaning of church and ministry. And it is Christ who determines the direction of church and ministry. When Christ is a central focus, every decision, every action, and every spoken word are all brought underneath his authority so that nothing is done without first considering how it brings God's light into a dark world. If Christ determines the plan and the purpose 
and the process, when he is then relegated to a secondary importance, then everything else is misaligned as well. When Christ is secondary, then Christ's message becomes secondary in ministry. And then when his message is more insignificant in ministry, then ministry really ceases to be ministry. If you attended Wednesday night this week, one of the groups that was mentioned was the student missionary movement, a movement that came about in 1888. It was a movement that signed up 20,000 missionaries and committed another 40,000 people to then pray and support those missionaries. These numbers are, are large. They're incredible and indeed are notable. They demand our attention, which is why this movement is so often used as an example. And so I can appreciate that on Wednesday night, John Piper was trying to share this as a good thing. The student missionary movement is frequently highlighted as one of the great success stories in missions. And we would do well to indeed take note of what they did initially. But in discussing that movement, one of my greatest disagreements is that most people fail to note that just 40 years later, that movement ceased to exist. There was a movement of 60,000 people, and it didn't last more than 40 years. That's less than a lifetime. Next year, the city of Longview will celebrate 100 years in existence. Think about that for a moment. A movement that consisted of twice the population of the city of Longview couldn't endure less than half the time the city of Longview lasted, or has lasted. What happened? It's really quite simple. They quit preaching the gospel. Those within the movement very quickly began to identify missions not as gospel proclamation, but as social reformation. They focused on social needs rather than gospel needs, and something that today's people would label as the social gospel. Prior to seeing lives transformed with the spiritual gospel, the student missionary movement sought to see lives changed with physical goods. Consider this, that in 1900, mainline Protestant churches provided 80% of the world's missionaries. And a hundred years later, in the year 2000, those same exact churches account for only 6% of the world's missionaries. In doing research on that subject, a friend of mine, Brian Biedebach, makes the connection between the decline in missionaries, and that decline there, with the introduction, once again, of the social gospel. He goes on, and his conclusion is this. It appears that making social reform an equal partner with evangelism and theological training doesn't enliven missions. It kills it. And so he spends pages and pages of research to prove that thesis, and once again, we should already know this, that when Christ is secondary, then Christ's message becomes secondary to ministry. And when the message becomes insignificant to ministry, then the ministry ceases to be a ministry. 
Whether you realize it or not, there are prominent theologians today continuing to push this agenda, placing social reform over spiritual revival and renewal. Indeed, we don't want to minimize the need and the good that may come with those projects, tasks like digging wells, providing meals and housing for those without, and so on. Those are good things. But if this was the goal of the church and any ministry, then the apostles seem to have failed that. What happens is that when we focus on other works over the gospel, the gospel ceases to be the priority and importance. And then what happens? A person's provided for their physical needs, but not their spiritual needs. A person has made room for inessential tasks while neglecting the essential tasks of the church. Things like preaching and teaching, discipleship, they're relegated to minor roles. And the problem with that is then you no longer have anybody trained to go on and make more disciples. And so the gospel ceases altogether. We must always be cautious that physical needs never supplant spiritual needs. When social reformation overtakes gospel proclamation, then the church has probably failed to grasp its call. And so it becomes essential then for for churches and everybody in them to understand who they are to proclaim, how they are to proclaim him, and why they should proclaim him. This is what we will find in our text this morning. I want us to look upon these verses in 1 Corinthians and and see the centrality of Jesus Christ in our gospel proclamation. At this point in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is still in the middle of his introduction. And what he's doing is establishing his own authority and explaining to them why he is able to say the things he says. And in doing so, we get this glimpse into Paul's ministry. And we understand exactly what it is that compels Paul to then preach the gospel. The central tenets of both his authority and his ministry are Jesus Christ. In essence, he is saying, I have the right to tell you these things because I've been given the authority to do so by our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see this in the way I conduct myself in ministry. And so then he goes on and and writes to them this lengthy letter. But I want you to note first in our passage, in our message this morning, Jesus Christ as our message. Jesus Christ as our message. John Owen writes of Christ, stating, I speak of those who are given him of his father. Is he dead? Christ is life. Is he weak? Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Hath he the sense of guilt upon him? Christ is complete righteousness. He hath a fitness to save, having pity and ability, tenderness and power to carry on that work to his uttermost and a fullness to save of redemption and sanctification or righteousness and the spirit and a suitableness to the wants of all our souls. When you read the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians, what should stand out is the prevalence of Christ's name in these verses. The writing makes it very clear that the theme of this letter is Jesus Christ. 
And the reason that Christ is the core theme of this letter or is because Christ is the core theme of Paul's life. As a, a side note, something to think about. If you want to note the state of your spiritual life, simply take note of your conversation with others. How quickly do you turn your conversation towards Christ? For most people, the closer they are to Christ, the more ready they are to talk about him. And so they are more apt to bring him up in, in conversation and do so rather quickly. Apart from this short introduction where Paul says, I am Paul, I'm writing to you. He then immediately goes on and, and makes sure that readers know he's talking about Christ. He transitions to that. Not only that, but Paul's writing then confirms that Christ is the central aspect of all things. It is in this passage that we not only learn the spiritual state of Paul's life, that Christ is central, but we learn really what should be the example for all our lives and the state of our spiritual lives. And so it gives us direction on who we are to proclaim here. It gives us direction on people's greatest need and actually their greatest rejection, as we'll see. It is here that we learn what the very topic of our conversations should be. He writes in verse 23, we preach Christ. What is the primary topic of conversation? It's none other than Jesus Christ, the one who is Lord over all, creator of all things, and now Savior. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, it reads, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That is who Christ is. That is the subject matter of our conversations. But then Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 goes on, and it says that in him Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in Christ the fullness of deity dwells the fullness of God that is to say that Christ is God and so when we proclaim Christ we proclaim nothing less than God we declare this Lord Jesus Christ this very one who was born of a virgin who then grew in stature and wisdom the man who devoted himself to the ministry of God for for about three years the same one who died on a cross for the sins of the world, the man who is God. All things were created by him, through him, for him. It is Jesus Christ that God has given his authority to. But then Paul takes it further in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 1. 
And he says specifically, we preach Christ crucified. What's interesting about this text is that Paul then indicates that Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. This is important because you see the following. If you look at verse 22, the verse right before, it says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. Notice first that the Jews demand signs, and it's interesting that it's plural. They don't demand one sign. It says signs. It's in multiple. It's as though one sign would be insufficient. That's no surprise. That's how people act today. Even when pointing to multiple evidences, people are quick to deny the existence of Christ. And that's what the Jews did. They had this whole Old Testament that outlined all these prophecies that they should expect. All these signs that they should see. They should have been able to wait with anticipation. Because the Lord had already told them what was going to happen. And yet when it came time to acknowledge the fulfillment of those signs... They still denied him. What does verse 23 say? Christ was a stumbling block to them. How could Christ be a stumbling block when he was the fulfillment? Because they had placed their expectations on those signs. The same thing is done today, in a manner of speaking. Though God reveals exactly who he is in his word, we we place our expectations on him. We have what we expect God to do. Same thing as what the Jews were doing. Though the Lord had outlined for them what would happen, they had already created scenarios in their own minds of what that should look like when he returned or when he came. And a crucified Christ wasn't part of that plan. In fact, to them, a crucified Christ showed weakness. And anyone so weak could not be the Messiah, surely according to their logic. But see, a crucified Christ was always part of God's plan. We see that throughout the Old Testament. Just read the book of Isaiah. Notice what else verse 22 says. The Jews demand signs, but then it also says the Greeks seek wisdom. And then verse 23 tells us that Christ was folly to them. He was foolishness. To the Greeks, Christ was the exact opposite of wisdom. Once again, a crucified Christ has become a stumbling block, but this time for the Greeks instead of the Jews. Remember that the Greek culture is a culture that prized and treasured human insight and wisdom. And a crucified Christ to them did not make sense. Surely to be Messiah, not only did he have to be living, but he should have been powerful enough to stop a possible crucifixion. This was the opposite of what typical wisdom would have said. And so it seemed foolish to them. But to the world, a crucified Christ will never make sense. Even when you point out that he was resurrected. It stands opposite of the expectations of people. And so they will be resistant and quick to deny the message being proclaimed. But their lack of response did not negate Paul's responsibility to proclaim. Paul's indication here by preaching Christ crucified is he's not stopping there. He's preaching the entirety of the gospel message. Christ crucified was simply the beginning of that message. 
Christ crucified was the beginning of salvation and redemption of men. It is the beginning of the resurrection in which Christ exerts his power over death and thus judgment. And so to preach Christ crucified was to proclaim all the message. To preach Christ crucified is to proclaim the wisdom of God. And to preach Christ crucified is to proclaim the power of God, as we'll see. It's not about preaching religion, as some might say. It's not about proclaiming vain philosophies. It's not proclaiming even agreement with the world's ways. It's about preaching the message of God. And it is only by the preaching of Jesus Christ crucified that lives are transformed. It is through Jesus Christ conviction of sin occurs. It is through Jesus Christ one recognizes his or her need for a savior. And it is through Jesus Christ that one can then be reconciled to God. The centrality of the message to be proclaimed must be Christ. Without Christ, there is no cross. Without Christ, there is no resurrection. And without Christ, there is no ascension. Without Christ, there is no transformation. Without Christ, there is no salvation. And so without Christ, there is no gospel. Jesus Christ is our message. I want you to know this second, that Christ is also our motivation. If the message we proclaim is Jesus Christ, then I would say the motivation for proclaiming that message is also Jesus Christ. Verse 24 reads, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Power and wisdom were two things that the Corinthian church seemed to want more of. David Jackman notes in his commentary that the more the Corinthians hankered for human wisdom and the power in the life of the church, the more they displayed their capitulation to the cultural norms of the city. That is to say that the, the Corinthian church was always seeking something more. But by always seeking something more, they ended up compromising. They wanted wisdom something that was very highly regarded during the time of Paul's writing. It was seen as being intellectual. And if one was seen as being intellectual, then they were placed above another. And so they wanted wisdom. But they also wanted power. Power gives one the ability to influence and control others. And so as the Corinthians started adopting these ways, they began to adopt the ways of the world, too. In their effort to get more wisdom and more power, they started letting the, church, the culture influence the church. And yet in Paul's writing here, he's saying there's, there's no need for the ways of the world when you have the ways of God. And you see that throughout the whole letter. The Jews demanded signs, and, and this was their sign. Their sign was the power of God, Jesus Christ, who performed miracles. And he, he fed thousands and he healed people. The very man who overcame the grips of death, death. What greater sign is there than that? And yet they still wanted more. Likewise, the Greeks wanted wisdom. And yet here's that wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30 shows us that Jesus Christ is wisdom personified. And so the way we counter the worldliness 
is to proclaim Christ because he is the power of God and the wisdom of God as seen in the text. We see first that he is the power of God. That's explained in Romans 1.4 and Romans 1.16 where both Jesus Christ and the gospel message are declared to be the power of God. In a natural state, us Christians are weak. We don't have the power to please God. And, but in Christ, we live in the power of God. And in declaring Jesus Christ, we do so because we have the power of God. And because he has the power to change those that we proclaim to. This power of God, there's nothing by human standards that we could ever measure it with. It was God's power, Christ's power, that created the heavens and the earth. It was God's power to cause the flood. And now through Jesus Christ, we mere humans have access to that power. As the power of God, Jesus Christ is the motivator because he is the overcomer. He has a power over all things. And thus true victory can only be found in Christ. That's wonderful for two reasons. One is, that means that when we proclaim Christ, it is him that is working his power in the lives of others to transform them. But that also means that when we're proclaiming him, his power is working through us. And so you get this dual relationship there when we proclaim Christ. We see also that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. Proverbs 9.10 reads, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. So when we fear the Lord, we will find wisdom. This is because fear of the Lord will lead us to Christ, who is wisdom. I just noted 1 Corinthians 1.30 that reads, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that it is written let the one who boast boast in the lord jesus christ is the wisdom of god this word wisdom is most prominently found in first corinthians chapters one through three paul uses it 26 times and in that usage he he denounces the superior wisdom of the world and instead suggests that there is something greater It's the wisdom of God. We saw this in our scripture reading in Colossians chapter 2 this morning. Remembering that the Colossians are being misled by false teachers, (coughs) Paul writes to counteract that. And he goes on into verse 23 and says, These, meaning the things they're teaching you, have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But... They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Once again, Paul is denouncing the superior wisdom of the world and instead says there's something greater. The world has always attempted to create its own wisdom. We don't see that just in our era today. That went all the way back to the first century church. And Paul is declaring that the true wisdom is Jesus Christ. And it is far superior to, human, to their human ways because it provides for the salvation of souls. It says later, the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. The wisdom of God is beyond compare. It is his wisdom that gave us this great plan that is outlined in scripture. Which one of us from a human standpoint could ever come up with something so glorious and majestic? 
While man's so-called wisdom is characterized by conjecture, God's wisdom is characterized by truth. Like Paul, we proclaim Christ in order to counteract a culture of worldliness. In order to stand against the world, we must proclaim Christ, who is the power and the wisdom of God. We preach Jesus Christ not merely because of what he has done, but because of who he is. And we're motivated to share because he is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Far greater than the ways of the world are the ways of God. Far greater than the power of this world is the power of God. And far greater than the wisdom of the world is the wisdom of God. Earlier we read Colossians 2.9. It says, in him, in Christ, the fullness of all deity dwells. But if you take that further to verse 10, it reads, and you have been filled with him. The fullness of deity of God dwells in Jesus Christ. And now it says believers have been filled with Christ. I don't think I need to point out that that doesn't mean we are little Christ or little gods. We are of different essence. And so we cannot make that leap. What it does mean is that when we witness, we do not do so necessarily under our own power or under our own wisdom. But through the Holy Spirit, we utilize the wisdom and power of God, which is far superior than what you and I have to offer. Do you know what that means then? That, that truth right there should motivate to us to proclaim the message. It also means that by having access to the power and wisdom of God, it, it now leaves us without excuse to go proclaim Christ crucified. Because no longer are we doing it under our own strength. The message we proclaim is Jesus Christ. And the reason we proclaim it is because of Jesus Christ. The message of Christ makes us distinctive. It is one thing, it is the one thing that we have to offer that nobody else has. Anybody can go out and provide some sort of social care or social work. But if we leave out the gospel, if we leave out that message of Christ, we have left off the one thing that nobody else can give them. And why do we do it? Because the gospel is the product and demonstration of God's power and wisdom. This too makes Christians distinctive. While the world would profess the wisdom of man, we proclaim the wisdom of God. In fact, the wisdom of man would tell you that the wisdom of God doesn't even exist. And yet the gospel shows us otherwise. I have no doubt that the more any of us, any person would study the word, the more we would experience the will of God. Why? Because the expectation is that as we study the word, we then would put that word into practice. Thus, we're living out God's will. And so the more you study the word of God, you experience the will of God. And the more you experience the will of God, the more you should be awed by the wisdom of God. I say that because living out the will of God, as we obey his commands, we come away with this experience of, that actually worked when I did it God's way, this made sense and it worked out to my good and his glory. And thus we become awed by God's wisdom to see that something we thought would be foolish actually 
tended to be the wisest action of all. Why does it work? Because it's the power of God. If you want to understand the power of God, think about how he uses the gospel to transform lives. You and I can't even transform our own lives, let alone transform somebody else's. And yet, God's power is displayed when his spirit uses that gospel to transform the lives of people. It's not our words, but his words. It's not our will, but his will. It's not even our work. It's his work. That should alleviate all fears of sharing the gospel. I once read something that William Gurnall had written, and in it he said, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. This is why the gospel begins to be removed. It's much harder to share the gospel than it is to hand out a dollar bill. To hand someone a dollar cost us but a dollar. To hand someone the gospel cost us our pride. We fear rejection, we fear repudiation, and we fear our reputation. What the organizations like that student missionary movement did was traded the gospel for their comfort. They took the easy task of helping through handouts while sidelining the hard task of convincing through conviction. They undermined the gospel by capitulating to their own fears. You know where we would really see this displayed? In all your universities. Think about how every Ivy League university began. They all began as a seminary. Each one was dedicated to the training up of men for the work of God. But as soon as they turned to other focuses, the gospel went by the wayside. Even today, they're still capitulating to the culture. They can't change quick enough. That's where that leads. But our message and our motivation, it must be Jesus Christ. If you remove either of those, then ministry ceases to be ministry. And so Jesus Christ is to be the source of the message, the object of the message, and the motivation for the message. The message of our pronouncement must be Jesus Christ. The method of our proclamation must be Jesus Christ. And the mark of our personhood must be Jesus Christ. It's interesting, when Jesus Christ is the message, we see their lives transformed. When Jesus Christ is the motivation, our lives are transformed. Let's pray. Our Father God, indeed we see your power and your wisdom on display through this glorious gospel message. (coughs) Father, it is profoundly Revealing in our lives when we we see the gospel message at work, Lord. Father, I pray that we'd be a church body, but also as individuals who would make Jesus Christ both the central message and the central motivation for our lives, Lord. Father, may we look upon your son and, and not only see what we receive out of that, Lord, but may we be so desirous and so encapsulated by the wisdom and power of that, Lord, May it guide it, may he guide and direct our lives, and may that influence our gospel proclamation, Lord. And so, Father, we thank you for for this message. We thank you for the result of that message, which is our renewal and our, our 
life with you, eternal life that we can have rather than eternal separation. And so we commit this to you, commend it all to you, giving you praise and honor and glory. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.